Good morning. It's great to see everybody here this morning. I look out and I see a couple of weary eyes from a very long, hard week at Vacation Bible School. For those of you that haven't been a part of one, though, they're very fun, but they're very, very tiring. And so I wanted to give out a, another thank you to everyone who volunteered for that. It was a really, really good, good week for, for God's Word to be shared, for the gospel to be presented, and for hearts to be changed. So thank you all who were praying or who were actively a part of Vacation Bible School this week. There is a phrase that if you've grown up in the Christian church or if you've grown up around Christians, you've heard it said many different times. The phrase is that Christians are supposed to be in the world, finish it with me, but not... Wow, y'all are good. That was really good. There was almost like a, like a harmony there. That was like, that was great. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. The idea of it, many of you know this, but for those of you that may not, is that the idea of it is that there's supposed to be some separation between folks who would consider themselves Christians and, and the world around them, but still be active in the world, right? You're supposed to be in the world, meeting people, learning people, hearing people's stories, and, and communicating Christ with them, but you're supposed to be separated from the world in your speech, in your conduct, in your character. It's... It's one that many of us have heard many different times. However, there's some people that perhaps maybe in this room today, Christian, non-Christian, on the fence, or there's people who may be listening online, again, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, or you're trying to determine whether or not you want to believe in this, who hear Christians say that, hear Christians believe that, but they don't see that. They don't see much separation between how Christians say they're supposed to act and how they are actually acting. They don't see that Christians are in the world but not of the world. Some people have lost their faith over this. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to take a step back from the phrase and simply ask the question, how are Christians supposed to look different than the world around us? What does that look like? What does that look like on a day-to-day life practically? How are we supposed to look different than the world around us? It's a good question. And there's many different ways that we are supposed to look different, but today I want to focus on three specifically. I want to focus on three different ways that Christians are supposed to look different than the world around them, in the world, but not of the world. And I believe that these three answers are found in the passage we're going to be studying today. If you have your Bibles, please open to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 13 through 25. Again, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 25. And as you're turning there, allow me to bring us up to speed. A couple of, of weeks ago, we were able to hear about the, the beginnings of, of 1 Peter and, and the, 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 the phrase, sort of the theme that we are looking for is in 1 Peter is holy living in the midst of suffering. Pastor John told us a little bit about that this morning, about how we, when we pursue holy living, the way that God wants us to live is that, that, that we cannot do that without encountering hardship along the way. It's impossible 
Holiness and suffering are very intertwined, and they cannot be separated. You can't have one without the other. And in the last passage that we went through, verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1, we talked about the highs and the lows of the Christian life, about how God promises great blessings to God's people, great honors and great things for us to worship God with. But he also promises us extreme difficulties, extreme sufferings. You can't have one without the other. And then we get here to verses 13 through 25, where we're going to be spending our time this morning. And I'm going to start off by reading verses 13 through 16. This is the first section in this passage. Please read verses 13 through 16 with me. The passage says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you At the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The first section in this scripture begins in verse 13 with the, with the general command that God gives us in this, in this first little bit of the passage. And it says this in, in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, here it is, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Breaking that verse down, Peter here, Peter writing to a a group of Christians 2,000 years ago is reminding them and is challenging them to remember what the ministry of Jesus was and remember what the ministry of Jesus will be because the Bible tells us that Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, lived his life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. And there he sits today. The Bible says actively praying for us, interceding for us, and revealing himself to us. The Bible also tells us that that's not where he's going to sit, and that's not where he's going to be forever. The Bible clearly promises that Jesus is coming back at some point. That the return of Christ is imminent at some point. We don't know when that is, and, and allow me to, before we jump into this, to, to make a full disclaimer of that there's a lot of ways that we can get lost in the weeds here, talking about the return of Jesus and the, the different events that have to happen for that to happen. It's, 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 it's Christians have debated on it for, for, th- for thousands of years at this point. And so I want to avoid that conversation for more information on that. Uh, talk with Pastor John about a conference happening up in September. But until, uh, I want to avoid that and and focus specifically on the fact of what Jesus is going to do when he comes back and why that is what we need to set our hope in. Because right now, we look around us, we look in a world around us, and we see a lot of difficulties in this world. I don't need to convince you of that. It doesn't matter what you believe in. This world is full of very many struggles, tragedies, and sufferings. 
It is. And, and it's, it's, it can be unbearable at times. Personal tragedies of, of lost loved ones, of, of sick relatives and friends, or, or even of, of, of worldwide tragedies, of wars and of, of, of governmental issues, and, and you, you fill in the blank. There's a lot of stuff out there that's not good. But we can have hope. Because the Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ returns to earth, what he's going to do is establish himself as the king of the world and remove all other governments and authorities and powers and kick them off of their thrones and set himself up as king. And when he does that, he ushers in a new age, one that none of us could ever fully understand until it happens. And an age when, when these evils and when these, these issues and these sufferings in this world are going to be removed. The Bible says that he's going to not only destroy these, every institution that exists in this world, but he's also going to destroy the current ruler of this world, that being Satan, the author of sin. Sin being anything that, bring, that, 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 that goes against the, the active design of how God wanted things to be. And so when Jesus comes back, the ruler of sin is going to be cast away. The Bible says he'll have one more chance, but it's a futile one where he will be destroyed. There will be a time in the future by the power and work of Jesus, not by us, where sin and evil will be removed. It will be removed. And that alone, that promise alone, guaranteed to us by our Savior, is worth our hope being put into that. There's nothing else that this world can provide that can give us the satisfaction, assurance, and peace that the return of Jesus can. Nothing else can solve the world's problems. We can come up with different solutions in an individual level or from much larger levels and, and give ourselves some forms of security one way or the other. But none of that will solve our problems. And so Peter here is, is challenging and commanding his audience to set their hope fully, not partially, not, not, not halfway, not I'm going to give it a little bit of thought, Jesus, but I, I'm holding on to this. No, fully on the grace that will be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What do you put your hope in? That sounds well and good, but how do we do that, though, right? That sounds very spiritual. Here at VBS, we heard a lot of uh, Sunday school spiritual answers. The VBS director asks a, a very simple question, and the kids respond, Jesus, Bible, God. But what's the, how do we actually do this? Well, the passage continues. Verse 14 onwards. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, First Peter, or Peter here quotes Leviticus chapter 11, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former 
ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. And so what, what, what Peter here is, is suggesting for us is that we are to look into our lives actively and see what we try, what, 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 wall, what walls and what barriers we build in this world to try to give ourselves some sort of peace and some sort of satisfaction and some sort of relief from the issues that this world presents to us that the human experience presents to us. And that could be a multitude of different things, but here Peter calls them the passions of your former ignorance. Because as I said, we all build something in our lives to latch onto for purpose and for identity and for security. And when that, that, that thing that we've built up is, is being pushed away or is being destroyed or is being proven to not be a firm foundation, we, we, we go on edge and we get defensive and we get bitter. Because we realize how fragile these walls that we build up in our own strength truly are. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But be holy as God is holy. Uh, a, a, a very important step in the process of holiness is being willing to look at what we hold on to in this world. And that could be a lot of different things. Some of those things can in fact be good things. And say that these, some of these things are bad and I have to, 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 to get rid of them. And other things, though, they're good, but they're not as good or as promising or as fulfilling as the return of Jesus. Because we can set our hope in a lot of things. We can set our hope in our families, in our, in our jobs, in our positions of authority, in our finances. We can say... God is good and I'll trust in him, but if, the, if, I, don't, if I don't have these, these paychecks and if I don't have this security, then, well, it's, 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 I don't know how I, like, how I feel about this. A way to tell what we set our hope in is to ask if that thing is gone, is God still good? If your family is gone, is God still good? If your checking account is empty, is God still good? If you don't have that authority, is God still good? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of the first ways that our life looks different from the world around us is that we have a life of hope, a hope in the return of Jesus, the return of Jesus alone. I'm not saying get rid of all these other things. Some of these things we do need to get rid of, but not, they don't need to be gotten rid of, but they need to be put into a proper place, that place being under and even being willing to be thrown at the feet of Jesus and say, I don't need this, I just need you. Because only you can provide me assurance knowing that sin will one day be destroyed and that you will reign as king. A life of hope. In the world, but not of the world, right? The second part is going to be found in verses 17 through 21. Please read this, this section with me. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 13, we had one command, set your hope on the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, we have another command. If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let's talk for a moment about fear. For some people, especially within Christian circles, fear can be a bit of a trigger word, right? Living in a a post-COVID world, The word fear was thrown out at a lot of different people with a lot of different opinions. It was used very flippantly as a a trump card on on opinions and, and thought processes and worldviews. Well, you're just living in fear. And so when we think of fear, we almost think of it as this, 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 this completely rid ourselves of fear. We can never be afraid. We can't be afraid of anything. Well, the Bible here clearly says we do have to be in fear, just in fear in the right thing. And this fear is in God. Why should we be afraid? Why should we have fear in God? Well, look at what verse 17 says. It says, if you call on him, being God, as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. One of the things that I've noticed, and and it's it's been around for, for hundreds of years, is that we have this, everyone has their own picture of who God is in their mind. Everyone draws a picture in your mind. If you watch TV shows, and many of them are making fun of, you see uh, an old dude with a bald head and a beard with a big white robe, and he's just kind of, he's walking around doing his own thing. But there's other pictures that we paint of God. And many times we can paint this idea of God, especially because of the ministry of Christ, as this very tender God, as this, 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 this soft God. You look at pictures of, and you see pictures of Jesus as this long blonde hair. Don't get me started on that. But this long blonde hair, flowy, graceful, big beard, Jesus. But here, God, though is our friend, though is our Savior, though is compassionate and tender and merciful and just, he judges impartially. There is no hierarchy in the eyes of God. There's no better than or worse than. Humanity is on equal footing. And we are judged according to our deeds, according to the things that we have done. Every action that you have done, God is judging you. Because God, like what it says in verse 13, is in the business of coming to earth and destroying sin. It's easy to look outside and say, yeah, God needs to get rid of that. 
God needs to destroy those things out there that are happening. But how do we feel when the camera pans towards us and pans towards us inwardly? Because we say and do a lot of things that are really bad. Like we really do, guys. I don't know if we, we, always re- we don't always realize the way that our deeds the way that the things that we do, even as people living in, in a, a simple life, we don't realize the evil that exists within us. If God's going to judge evil, God is going to judge us. We might say that's unfair. Why would God go after me? Well, if we are to say that some people who aren't as bad can go without punishment, then is God truly good at that point? God is good by defeating evil, by promising that he will defeat sin and evil, and it will be locked away and eternally punished. But if God even lets a sliver of evil go unpunished, is God truly just? Is God truly good? Is God truly what he says he is? God must destroy evil, which means that if we have evil in us, God must in some way Punish us. Conduct yourselves with fear. Because God's in the business of destroying sin, and we are sinners. But we continue when we find hope in the midst of fear. Verse 18 onward. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We have this this, this sin, this evil issue, and if it is left unchecked, then God will punish us for it. But the Bible here tells us that we were ransomed. We were ransomed. If you watch any... um, spy movies or action movies, action adventures, you've, you've seen the, the storyline of a, there's a hostage situation and there's these, these bad guys that are holding people in and for, for one reason or the other, money, whatever else, and, and, and the police are surrounding the building, there's the big flashing blue lights and there's a guy with a speaker and there's snipers upside, it's this big old, it's a, it's a movie thing, right? And many times these, these bad guys with the guns, they give out what's called a ransom note, a ransom note. They say, if you want these hostages to be safe, this is what it costs. Whatever it may be. Millions, who knows. Depends on the movie, I guess. But the word ransom, specifically in the time that First Peter was writing, was the cost of a, of a slave. Because if you were a slave in the first century Roman world, if you accumulated a certain amount of money, from one way or another, you could buy your own freedom. You could pay your ransom. You could be set free from the bondage of slavery and be liberated. And that is exactly what Jesus did with us. How Jesus ransomed us from what? From the futile 
ways inherited from your forefathers. That's that sin issue that we have. It began in the first humans with Adam and with Eve and and has carried down from generation to generation. If you look through the Old Testament, you see even the book of of Genesis, how Adam and Eve have sinned and then God promises someone who will will, will help them and then they they have their their, their kids, Cain and Abel. Maybe this is it. Well, nope, they, they sinned. Okay, so it's not them. Well, then we go to Noah. Maybe it's him. He's righteous. Well, nope, he, he sinned after the flood. Okay, well, we go. Maybe it's Abraham. Well, he sinned. And, and the Old Testament is a continuous sequence of events of failure upon failure of failure and realizing that we can't do this on our own. And then the New Testament brings in Jesus. Who ransomed us not with things that we can accumulate in this world, not wealth, not power, not influence, not doing the right things, not our own ethical system of values, but with his own precious blood, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I was trying to think of a way to explain this in another way, and and, and for some reason, this came to mind. This last weekend, my, me, and, me and Kezi had some friends come and visit us. And I've noticed something about friends, or even some of our students here in youth group, I'm going to pick on you for a moment, so be ready, is that a lot of people, whenever they see my car, you've recognized my car, it's very hard to not recognize it, people like to tease my car. They like to make fun of my car. If you haven't seen it, it's this really bright, olive green, old 07 Ford Focus. When you hear it, it it squeaks and it wiggles and it has, it just rumbles a little bit too much. Every time my dad sees it, he goes, oh, it's it's getting louder, which is not a good thing. And students, they, they see it and they pick on it. They're like, wow, what even? And, and sometimes they're influenced by, by other people who don't like the color of it. And they're, they're just, it's just not that great of a car. And I fully realize this. And I know that what I'm doing with this car is I'm driving it until it, 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 it dies. I, I'm not going to put big money into this thing. It's, it's old. I'm driving it into the ground. But, and for those of you that have had a car that has been driven into the ground or has been involved in a major accident that has made it so that it cannot accomplish its purpose, we call that being totaled, we see this, this totaled, destroyed car and we say, well, and nobody sits here and says, you know, that car is really, is, is, it's, it's totaled, it's ruined, it cannot achieve its purpose, but I'm going to take this brand new car here in the lot and I'm going to tear this new car apart to go fix my old car. No one really does that. You you might do that if you see some restoration uh, videos on on the History Channel or whatever else, restoring some really nice old classic cars. Some of you all know what I'm talking about. But why would you do that for a nasty-looking, rust-covered, olive-green car? That doesn't make sense. And if you have a car in a major accident, you're not going to spend thousands of thousands of dollars to fix it to die later. That doesn't make sense sense. But then if we take a step back and we look, isn't that a little bit of what God did for us? Just as that totaled car cannot achieve its purpose of driving you from one place to the other, aren't we unable to achieve our purpose because of our sin issue, that being live in communion and love and relationship with God because of our sin? 
And was not Jesus the the perfect example of holiness and life and love? That brand new car? But didn't he not break himself to repair us? Is that not what the gospel is? I think it is. And for those of you that know cars, I realize it's not that simple. Give me a little bit of grace here. But that is the paradoxical nature of the gospel and that we see and we go, why would we do that? God says, I'm going to do that. That is how much I value you. That is how much you are loved. That is how much you are cared for. You were a useless, worthless piece of junk, but I fixed you by breaking myself. That is the gospel. And that is the value that God, that is the cost that God paid to save you. And this passage continues showing us the value that God had in us and the the, the value that Christ himself had, where it says that he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but but was made manifest in the last times for you. God didn't need us. He chose us. Should we not conduct ourselves with fear because of the great price that God spent for us? God says, I gave everything for you because I love you. And I demand from you everything in return. Conduct yourselves with fear. The first way our lives are supposed to look different is a life of hope. The second way our lives are supposed to look different is a life of fear. Fear in what? Fear in the God who risked everything to save you. And and, and this, this requires us to also take a step back and look at what in this world makes us afraid. What in this world makes us Afraid. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of happening? What are you afraid of, of what's going on? If you're, if you're trying to figure out what that might look like, look at the opposite of what you hope for. If you hope for financial security, you're afraid of going broke. If you hope to have this successful career, you're afraid of, not ha- of, of, of losing your job. If you hope in your family, you're afraid of your family being destroyed or running away from the Lord. There's a lot in this world that we can be afraid of. Take your pick, guys. And we even live in a world that, that propagates, that, that pushes fear onto us. It says you need to be afraid of this. If this happens, we're done. If that thing over there happens, then the, the fate of the world is destroyed. It's, have you noticed how, 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 how big language is now of fear? If the thing happens that you don't want to have happen, you are all going to be ruined. It's very big language, very bold statements. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, if those things that we're afraid of happen, is God not bigger? Allow me to hit a couple of big ticket issues, especially among Christians. I'm sure many of you are aware that it is midterm season. And if you want to talk about fate of the world, scary language, check out your nearest news station. 
that's specifically focusing on politics. Is God not bigger? Think of the worst thing that could happen come November. Is God not bigger than that? Should we still not grow in holiness? Because even if that happens, God's still bigger? Think of another thing. I know there's a lot of Christians, especially uniquely in the United States. This is a, a unique thing for the United States. I'm sure it happens other places, but it's, 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 it's a lot bigger in the U.S., but fear of, of persecution. A lot of Christians are afraid that if the wrong thing happens, we're going to get persecuted. Well, guess what? The church has been persecuted for 2,000 years. There's never been a time when in somewhere in the world Christians were not arrested and killed for their faith. In the best of times and the worst of times, has God not preserved them? Will God not preserve us? What have we to fear? If your idea of the worst thing happens, we cannot trade off holy living to stop what we're afraid of most. God promises it'll get bad. Is he not bigger? In the world, but not of it, right? What a mission. What a way to show that we trust in God and a God that is bigger than the current events of our world. If the whole world is freaking out and yelling at each other for us to say, God's bigger than this. We cannot jump in to what the world's afraid of. We can't. We cannot afford it. God is bigger. God will still win. The first way our life looks different, a life of hope. The second way our life looks different, a life of fear. The third way our life looks different, that's found in verses 22 through 25. And this leads up to the end of the passage. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. For, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. A life of hope. A life of fear. The third way, a life of love. Based on all the information we've learned, based on the, the, the wonderful grace that will be revealed to us when Jesus comes back and how we're commanded to trust in that alone, based on the fact that God gave everything for us to be reconciled and ransomed for him, to be in obedience to him, based on both of those things, based on what the word shows us, verse 22, verse, 20, verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. When we have our hope in the right place, when we have our fear in the right places, when we can love in the right way. If we aren't loving in the right way, our hope or our fear is somehow misconstrued. 
Because this passage, it says that, 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 that since, or, or having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, the previous passage, based on that, you can love one another. Because based on that point, we realize how great God's love is for us and how much hope and peace God provides for us, then we are able to take that hope, take that love, take that peace, not keep it in us, not just sit here and and sit back and say how great I am because God loves me, but give that love back out to a world that doesn't have hope in the right place, that doesn't have fear in the right place, and that desperately needs love. This might be the hardest part of the passage. But it's the most, it's one of the most, one of the most important parts of the passage. And we're not loving people just because we feel good, just because we, we think it's the right thing to do, but it's because of what the Word of God reveals to us. Because of what, in verse 25, the, or verse, yeah, the end of verse 25, of the good news that was preached to you, because of what the gospel is, good news and gospel are the same word, because of what the gospel is, we can love one another. Love one another in what way? There's different definitions of love, especially in our world today. What kind of love is God asking us to give to others? A love that God showed us of all-encompassing, all-sacrificing love for us. God gave everything for us, and we are commanded to give everything for others. It says love one another. The context of this would be in the church, but I think that we can draw out a greater ap- a, an application from that and say it's not just focused on the church, but it's a love for the whole world. But I think it's interesting that Peter rests on loving one another within the church first. And a lot of New Testament writers focus on loving one another in the church first. You look at almost every New Testament letter written to a church, the, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Romans, First Peter writing to Asia Minor and these, these, these different churches. All of these churches struggle in one way or another with the issue of unity, with the issue of caring for each other. You can look at it. You can look into it. One of the biggest issues is unity. If we can't even love each other, how can we love people that don't even like us? Since I've been hitting big topics, let's hit another big topic. You're all aware, we're all aware, that our church is still in the midst of a transition. And it hasn't been an easy one. And people have been hurt. I think in many ways, a lot of rhetoric that's been, that's been given or passed through one person or another can be over-dramatized. But I don't want to say that there hasn't been hurt. There very much has been. We're struggling. Somebody I heard once said that we're in a wilderness. It's hard. And everybody realizes that. Congregants, leadership, everybody, everybody. But from this, from this tension, there have been a lot of different things that people have said that is not all sacrificial loving towards others. And if that's what's been said, I don't even want to know what we're thinking of but choosing not to say. 
How have your thoughts been towards others? Towards people that you think are stopping us from doing what God wants us to do. Many of you may have a person in your mind right now. That's the person that you are commanded by the word of God to give everything to for the sake of loving them. It's easy for people to to fall on different lines and and, and not be in communion with each other, not talk to each other, because we're afraid that that tensions will build into arguments, that arguments will build into disagreements, and disagreements are conflict, and, and we just want to avoid that. So let's just avoid those people that we're not really seeing eye to eye with. No. Those are the people that you are supposed to go to. Why? Because God gave everything for you. And also because God gave more. Because we, according to the Bible, were holy against God. 100% against God. Wanted nothing to do with God. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, right? Children of wrath, actively working against God's plan. That was our state when Jesus gave everything for us. How much more should we give everything for those in the body of Christ, especially those that we may not see eye to eye with? If you want to grow in holiness, my challenge for you this week is to figure out who that person is that you're a little fed up with. Figure out who that is and sacrifice something big for them. Something big. Something that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. It's easy to give something small because we know that that, you know, that won't affect me that much. But something big. What's something big you can do towards your brothers and sisters in Christ that you're not seeing eye to eye with? What is that? If you want to grow in holiness... Definitely a good first step. In the world, but not of it, right? The world doesn't do that. The world doesn't want to do that. The world separates and tribes form and and, and arrows get flung, but God's people are called to something greater. In the world, but not of it, right? Based on all that information, Here's what I have to say. The Christian life looks different in three ways. Our hope, our fear, and our love. And it's not easy. I'm not up here telling you that it's easy. I'm up here struggling with you, alongside you. I'm not speaking from the fact that I've figured it out. I'm speaking from the fact that the word of God is commanding us that if we want to grow closer to him, this is what we're supposed to do. If we want to be a church that makes a difference in the community, if we want to be a church that's united, if we want to be a church that honors Christ, be all in, this is what we're supposed to do. A life of hope, a life of fear, and a life of love. That's how we can be in the world, but not, say it with me, of the world. The question is, Is your life showing this? Do you have a life of hope in the right place? Do you have a life of fear in the right place? Do you have a life of love in the right place? And 
how are you going to show that love towards somebody in the body of Christ?